The Book of Genesis. In the first video, we saw how chapters 1 through 11 set up the basic storyline of the Bible. God has created all things, and he makes humans in his image to rule the world on his behalf. The humans choose sin and rebellion, and so the world spins out of control into violence and death, all leading up to the rebellion and scattering of the people in Babylon. And so the big question is, what is God going to do to rescue and redeem his world? Well, out of that scattering at Babylon, the author traces a genealogy of just one family that leads eventually to a man named Abram, later known as Abraham. And God's promise to Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12 opens up a whole new movement in the story. God calls Abraham to leave his home and go to the land of Canaan, which God says will become his one day. And in that land, God promises to make Abraham into a great nation, to make his name great, and to bless him. Now, these promises are connected back to earlier parts of the book. So Babylon had arrogantly tried to make a great name for itself, and that didn't go over very well. But God, in his generosity, is going to bestow a great name on this no-name guy, Abraham. And God's blessing of Abraham echoes all the way back to that original blessing God gave humanity in the beginning. So the question is, why is God going to bless Abraham and his family? And the last line of God's promise makes this clear. So that all the families of the earth will find God's blessing in you. Now, this is key for understanding the whole rest of the biblical story. God's plan is to rescue and bless his rebellious world through Abraham's family. And this is why the whole rest of the Old Testament story is just going to focus on this one family, eventually called the people of Israel. This is also why Israel will later be called a kingdom of priests at Mount Sinai. God wants to use them to show all of the other nations what he's like. And ultimately, this is the promise that gets picked up by the later biblical prophets and poets who say that its fulfillment will come through Israel's messianic king, whose reign will bring justice and peace to all of the nations. Now, at this point of the story, none of that's clear. You just have to keep reading and watch the promise develop. And so the rest of the book focuses on Abraham and his family. First, Abraham himself, then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons. And the stories about each generation, they're united by two main themes. So first, each generation of Abraham's family is marked by repeated failure. They just keep making really bad decisions that mess up their lives and that put God's promise in jeopardy. However, God remains faithful to them. He keeps rescuing them from themselves and reaffirming his commitment to bless them and bless the nations through them despite their failings. So the Abraham stories. God had promised Abraham a huge family, but on two different occasions, he's afraid for his life because other men are attracted to his wife. And so he denies that he's even married to her, which creates, of course, all of these problems. And not only that, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they can't have children. And so Sarah arranges for Abraham to sleep with one of their servant girls, which also creates all of these problems in the family. But each time, God bails Abraham out. And in chapters 15 and 17, God even formalizes his promise to Abraham with an official commitment called a covenant. This is a classic scene. God invites Abraham to look up at the night stars and to count them. And he says, that's how numerous your family is going to be. And despite all of the odds, having no kids and no way to have any at the moment, Abraham looks up in the sky and simply trusts God's promise. And God responds by entering into a covenant with Abraham, promising that he will become a father of many nations, that God's blessing may come to the whole world. 
God asked Abraham to mark his family with a sign of the covenant, circumcision of all the male boys in the family. This is a symbol to remind them that the fruitfulness of their family is a gift from God. And so Abraham has lots of kids eventually, and he dies at a good old age. Now, the Jacob stories play out these themes even more dramatically. From birth, Jacob lives up to the meaning of his name, which is deceiver. He cheats his brother Esau out of his inheritance and blessing, and he does it by deceiving his old blind father, no less, and then he just takes off. He goes on to take four wives, even though he really only loves one, Rachel, and this creates all of these rivalries in the family. The only thing that humbles Jacob is being deceived by his uncle Laban, who cheats him out of years of his life. The tables have finally turned. And so it's a humbled Jacob that returns to his homeland. And in a very strange story, Jacob ends up wrestling with God as he demands that God bless him. Some things never really change, do they? However, God honors his determination and he passes Abraham's blessing on to him. And he renames Jacob as Israel, which means wrestles with God. Now, it's this last part of the book, the story of Jacob's sons, where all the themes come to a head. Jacob loves his second to youngest son, Joseph, more than any of the others. And he gives him this special jacket. And the 10 older sons come to hate Joseph. And so they kidnap him and they plan to kill him. But instead, they decide to just sell him into slavery in Egypt, where he ends up in prison. Talk about family failure. But God is with Joseph. And he orchestrates Joseph's release from prison. And Pharaoh ends up elevating Joseph to second in command over all of Egypt. And so Joseph saves the nation of Egypt during a famine. And he also ends up saving his brothers and his family from starving to death. And so once again, we can see the folly and the sin of Abraham's family is met with God's faithfulness, who subverts even the evil of the brothers into an occasion to save life. And this is actually what Joseph says right near the end of the book. He says to his brothers, you all planned this for evil, but God planned it for good to save many lives. Now, these words are strategically placed at the end of the book because they summarize not only the story of Joseph and his brothers, but the book as a whole. From Genesis 3 onward, humans keep acting selfishly and doing evil, but this God is not going to leave his world to its own devices. He remains faithful and determined to bless people despite their failures. You can see this especially in how that mysterious promise about the descendant of the woman gets developed throughout the book. So remember, Genesis 3, God promised that this wounded victor would come and crush the snake and defeat evil at its source. And the author then connects this promise directly to the line of Abraham. This is a part of how God's going to bring his blessing to the nations. Now, from Abraham, this promise gets connected to Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. And this is how. In an extremely important poem in chapter 49, an aging Jacob, he's on his deathbed. He wants to bless his 12 sons. And when he comes to Judah, Jacob predicts that Judah will become the tribe of Israel's royal leaders and that one day a king will come who will command the obedience of all the nations and fulfill God's promise to restore the garden blessing to all of the world. World. And then after this, Jacob dies. And later, Joseph dies too. And the growing family remains in Egypt. And so the book of Genesis ends with all of these future hopes and promises left hanging and undeveloped. And it forces you to turn the page to see how it's all going to turn out. But for now, that's the book 
of Genesis. So 50 chapters of the Bible in eight the minutes. Genesis. Pretty good, huh? In the first video, we saw how chapters 1 through 11 set up. I think the one of the reasons why the I love these videos, uh, and as we're reading through Scripture, I'm just reminded again and again um, uh, how sinful, how broken, how self-centered uh, these folks were. God's people, right? Uh, the Israelites, and yet they just continue to mess up and make mistakes over and over and over. Makes me feel good about myself. It makes me feel like, man, there's hope for me too. Well, we're going to be in Genesis 32 today, and if you've got your Bibles, and I want to encourage you guys to bring these Bibles. You can bring any Bible, of course. Uh, I know many of you are uh, also uh, listening to it. I'm listening to it and reading and following along. Um, but uh, go ahead and uh, open to page 44. Uh, that's where we're going to be today in uh, Genesis uh, 32. One of the major themes that we are going to see as we go through God's Word, Genesis through Revelation, uh, is this idea of God's story that God chastens those whom He loves. God restrains uh, those who need restraining. Uh, God corrects. God disciplines. God subdues. Uh, those uh, whom he loves, like good parents do, right? And in fact, God even inflicts suffering on God's people, not just because he's mad or he's um, uh, you know, trying to get them, but because he loves them and he's trying to draw them back to him. And so this is one of the themes that we're going to really uh, look at today. When I was 11 years old, uh, I got my first job. I got a paper route. Anybody else ever have a paper route? I was 11 years old with my paper route. It was a, a seven-day-a-week paper route. I delivered between 120 and 130 newspapers, and I would get on my bike uh, after school in the afternoon. It was an afternoon newspaper uh, delivery route, which was awesome. I didn't have to get up early in the morning. This is in southern Minnesota. Uh, delivering the Austin Daily Herald. And most days, that was just me. Out, that's not me. That's from like the 1950s, but that's where my kids think I, you know, lived. But that's kind of another sermon. But anyways, that was me, you know, kind of out delivering newspapers on my bike. And uh, I enjoyed the paper route. And every now and then, uh, when there was too much snow, uh, my next door neighbor, Dwayne Iverson, would say, hey, get on the back of my snowmobile. And sometimes we would deliver newspapers on the back of a snowmobile. That was just part of the deal. And uh, on occasion, um, my mom uh, would offer to help deliver uh, newspapers as well. So we would get in our 1978 Subaru, and she would drive me around, and I would deliver newspapers. And we got, I got a little time with my mom, which was awesome. So it was the year um, between my 12, well, I was getting ready to turn 13. I was on the cusp of being a teenager, and I might have been feeling a little bit entitled. And I was not really feeling the paper route as it was leading up to my 13th birthday. And so I remember very clearly and distinctly uh, when my mom said, hey, aren't you going to deliver the newspapers? Just saying, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. I, I, I don't want to do it today. You know, again, I'm, I'm almost a teenager, and I had just a little bit of attitude. And my mom says, 
oh no, you need to deliver the newspapers. And I said, I don't want to. And this kind of went back and forth a little bit. And uh, pretty soon when my dad came home from work, I quickly discovered that my 13th birthday party, which we had been planning and I was really looking forward to, I had invited a group of friends to go roller skating. It was the thing uh, at the roller skating rink. And they said to me, because you have refused to deliver newspapers, which by the way you will do, you will pick up the phone and you will call all your friends letting them know that your 13th birthday party is canceled. That was 42 years ago. And I remember how embarrassed I was calling my friends and letting them know uh, that my 13th birthday party was canceled because of my behavior. I remember being angry with my parents and even experiencing the pain of all that. But you know what? My parents were absolutely right. This is what good parents do is they chasten their children. They correct their children. They remind them that they are parents and not their buddies or their friends. And my parents were really good parents. In the moment, I didn't like it at all. And I needed some correction. And this is really, in some level, the story of Jacob as he is wrestling with God. God comes to him and he chastens him. He subdues him and he even inflicts pain on his life so that Jacob would have an opportunity to have his relationship restored with God. Because up until this time, Jacob was a runner. He was running from God. And God says, as we sang about this morning, I'm going to run you down. I'm going to tackle you. And we're just going to go at it until you cry, uncle, until you give up. Now, the interesting thing about Jacob is uh, he gets a lot of ink uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, so he's from about Genesis 25 uh, to 49. So there is a lot in the book of Genesis about Jacob. And we're just going to cover this one little piece of his life, uh, this wrestling with God. So if you're at... Uh, Genesis, uh, where did I say we're going to be today? 32, uh, 22. Uh, let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. God, thank you uh, for time together this morning to worship you. God, thank you for uh, chasing down Jacob uh, as you continue to chase down your people. And you chase down us. And so, Lord, as we reflect on this story, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable. For you are indeed our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I'm going to give you just a little bit of overview here uh, to kind of bring you up to speed where we're at in the story of uh, Jacob. So you probably recall Jacob had a twin brother, Esau, and they would wrestle. They were brothers, right? And they would wrestle uh, both literally and metaphorically. In fact, uh, when their mother was pregnant with these twin boys, they would, Scripture tells us that they wrestled in her womb and they would go back and forth. And so when the twins were about ready to be born, out comes Esau, right? He was the firstborn. And in their culture, that was a really big deal. The firstborn got the inheritance. And so as he's coming out, he, uh, Jacob has got his heel. He's grabbing on to him. And so he is the second born uh, in the family. And so he gets named uh, Heel Grabber 
Jacob means heel grabber. Uh, it's, um, think of it in the idea of someone who trips you up. And this was, as they said in the video, he was a deceiver. He was the, the, the one who manipulated other people. This is what the name Jacob means. In our vernacular, we might say he was a con man. This is who Jacob was, and this is why he got named, as, as a heel grabber. And this really became his identity uh, throughout his life, in terms of how he lived his life. And you probably remember the story of when uh, Jacob and Esau were trying to get the blessing from their father. And Jacob put uh, 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 animal uh, skin on him so that he was hairy like his older brother. And he tricked his brother and he tricked his father, Isaac, so that he could get the blessing. Again, he lives into his namesake as being a, a deceiver, as a con man. And it got really bad, of course, because he tricked his brother uh, out of all that was going on. And so he, need, he knows he needs to leave town. And there's Jacob running away from his family. By the way, they're in the promised land. He's running away. And the last thing he hears is his brother Esau yelling at him, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. And he's hightailing it. And he doesn't really know where he's going to go, but he heads off into the wilderness. Pretty soon he ends up with his uncle, Uncle Laban. And this begins a 20-year uh, time period of exile where he is uh, away from his family, but he's with Uncle Laban. And this, the, the plot kind of thickens because while he's with Uncle Laban, the con man gets conned by his Uncle Laban. And the story gets really, really interesting. And he has a falling out with Laban. He's mad at Laban because the con man got conned. And so he's like, I I've had enough. After 20 years, I'm going back home. And as he's walking back home, you know, I can about imagine he's thinking, oh, the last words my brother Esau said to me is, I'm going to kill you. So he's burned bridges with his brother and his father on the front end. And the one place he could go was to Uncle Laban. And now he's burned bridges there. So he is between a rock and a hard place. And so he starts walking home. And as he's walking home, he starts praying to God this prayer of desperation. I don't know if you've ever prayed a prayer of desperation before. I think we all have. And it's this prayer of desperation, God, protect me, watch over me. And as he's walking home, all of a sudden these 400 men come out to meet him. Esau's men. Oh, this isn't good, right? And he's thinking to himself, oh, he's going to kill me and my family. So what Jacob does, the, the deceiver, the con man, is he sends uh, 580 animals ahead as a way to bribe his brother, as a way to appease his brother. Now, I don't know what you got under your Christmas tree this year, but Esau got 580 animals. That's, that's a pretty good gift, right? And he's just really trying to buy off his brother to say, oh, I know you're really mad at me, but here's 580 animals a little bit of uh, that you can take care of uh, so, so you won't kill me. So he's, he's walking home and he's, he throws out this bribe to his brother and then it's, it's getting to be nighttime. It says that Jacob goes away to a quiet place and there he is all by himself. Page 44, Genesis 32. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two uh, servant wives and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After their taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp. 
And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Even today, the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. So Jacob has a wrestling match, and I grew up in the 80s, and uh, when I think of wrestling, I think of WWE. Anybody else? Just me? This is not that, so scratch that from your mind, even though I gave you that image here this morning. In fact, what's going on is a, a, a guy just shows up. It says he's a man. Doesn't really tell us a whole lot about him. Who is this man? Fortunately, throughout Scripture, as we continue to read the Bible, there are several references back to this uh, event in terms of what's going on, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so this is what Hosea, who lived many hundreds of years uh, after Jacob, as he's describing and recounting this in Hosea 12, he tells us who this man was. Jacob took his brother by the heel in the womb, remember we talked about that, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. Different translations of this story talk about this as the angel of the Lord. But scripture makes it clear time and time again that this was actually God himself, this man, this manifestation of God. And the theological term uh, for who this man is, a Christology. And a Christology is a physical manifestation of the Spirit of God. And it's this, this, this Christology shows up in the Old Testament on several different occasions. Just a couple examples. You remember the story of Abraham and uh, he's going along with a couple friends. And they, they, uh, he, he, uh, Abraham and meets these three people, an angel of the Lord and two friends. And they go on to Sodom and Gomorrah. And we learn about what goes on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But that was a, a Christology, this idea of Abraham met the very presence of God. Then there was another time where Gideon, later on in Scripture, we're going to learn about how he meets an angel of the Lord. Again, the very presence of God in a human body. Then you probably remember the story, uh, maybe from Vacation Bible School, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember when they get thrown in the fiery furnace? Three guys in the fiery furnace, and they look inside, and there are four people walking. And Scripture tells us that that was an angel of the Lord. 
the very presence of God himself. This is what a Christophany is. This idea of God showing up in the Old Testament. It's as if Jesus in human form shows up in the Old Testament. And oftentimes we think, Jesus, New Testament, right? But there are these several instances throughout the Old Testament where uh, I'll just say Jesus shows up, but it's God in human form literally showing up and talks to people and encounters people and oftentimes is referred to as the angel of the Lord. It's kind of like a God sighting. Kind of like what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is we're looking around, seeing where the Holy Spirit is moving in our lives around us and then, and then going, ah, I see God moving. And see, when we share these God stories with one another, what we're doing is we're bearing witness, bearing testimony to God moving in our lives, in our world, in our families. But in the Old Testament, it was literally a person, the person of God showing up, interacting uh, with God's people. I had another God sighting this week, and uh, it was really, really fun. The, I've, I've had a couple of God sightings now, and... Um, each time, God has just shown up, and I wasn't looking for God. God just showed up, and then when God showed up, and I saw the presence of God moving uh, in, in uh, other people, it was just, it was overwhelming. It was, it was jarring, even, because it was like, oh, I wasn't looking for God, but God showed up yet again. So I, I picked up the phone, and I called my friend Denise, and I said, Denise, I got another God sighting. And so I hope uh, you all are, uh, as you're seeing God's sightings, that you're sharing them with one another. Because if you see God, the Holy Spirit, moving in your life and in the world, and you just keep it to yourself, I mean, that's, that's okay. But I think the blessing comes when we share our God stories with those uh, around us. And I know many of you are sharing your God sightings in your life groups. And so just want to encourage you to keep doing that. So a man came and wrestled with Jacob. Literally, they're wrestling. But in many ways, this is Jacob's story, is that he wrestles with God throughout his life. And I don't know if you can relate to Jacob, but wrestling with God, this idea of God, I don't understand this. Let's talk. Let's argue about this. Sometimes we wrestle with God, for God when God has a specific word for us or his will for our lives. God wants us to do something. We're like, oh, I don't know, God. Does it really say that? I, I'm not really sure. I, I need some more clarification. Sometimes God will give us a, an agenda or give us plans for our lives. And we, and we wrestle with God. I mean, we, we kick God, we, we, we pinch God, we bite God, we, you know, we, we buck God. We're like, no, God. I don't want to do that. We wrestle with God because we don't want to submit. And in this story, God's story, Jacob is wrestling literally with God, but also this is the metaphor of his life, wrestling with God. When our kids, uh, before our kids were born, there was a popular book that came out by Dr. James Dobson called The Strong-Willed Child. 
And I was so excited to see that book because my wife and I, we, we knew we were going to have kids. And, and I thought I would never need that book because I thought, you know, we were just going to figure it all out. And, and we would subdue our children uh, into obedience. But anybody uh, read The Strong-Willed Child? Yep, okay, some of you, some of your hands went up really fast. Uh, were any of you the strong-willed child? Okay, yeah, some of you admit that, absolutely, for sure. Um, and we all, at some level, we are strong-willed children. We don't want to submit to God because we want to do our lives our way, and so they wrestle back and forth. And they wrestle, Scripture tells us, that we just read all night long. I mean, this isn't just a quick, you know, wrestling match, but it goes on and on and on. And at some point in time, the man, the angel of the Lord, reaches out and simply touches Jacob and pulls his uh, bone out of the socket, you know, tears the ligament, if you will. It's an interesting part of the story. I don't know if you've ever like dislocated a finger or a shoulder or maybe a hip, but a dislocated uh, bone, is, it's really painful. And I can imagine this is really painful for Jacob as well. But remember how I started the message this morning? That one of the major themes of Scripture is that as we go through life, as we read the story of God, that oftentimes because of God's love for his children, he chastens them. He inflicts pain on them. He calls them back. And sometimes it really, really hurts. And that's what's going on uh, in the story. I was thinking about back to some of the own uh, chastening I received as a child uh, beyond the roller skating rink and the canceled birthday party. But I remember, I, I was thinking about this this week, standing in the corner. Anybody else stand in the corner? Man, how about uh, sitting in timeout, like in a timeout chair and just watching the world go by and it just seemed like time slowed down. Ugh. And, you know, those things weren't so bad because every now and then my dad would get out his belt, too. And there was physical, you know, a, a spanking, I guess, if you will. Chastening. And it hurt, right? I, I mean, I remember hurting. But my parents did this. They corrected me. They disciplined me because they loved me. And this is what God is doing uh, with Jacob uh, at this point in time. It's that short-term pain for the, the long-term building character, building virtue in his life so that he submits. Jacob is a runner. He's running all the time. And God gets him right in the place where he cannot uh, keep running. He says, enough. But I think it's also interesting in the story that God, when the man, uh, the angel of the Lord comes out to wrestle Jacob, he doesn't just take him down like he could have done but he wrestles with him all night long, which I think tells us, reminds us that God is going to, he's going to wrestle with you. He's going to let you wrestle with him. He's not going to just correct you on the spot. He's going to let you put up a fight. And Jacob was really, really stubborn and he was really strong. And so this wrestling match goes on and on and on. And I don't know about you, but how long do you want to keep wrestling with God? Because he can keep going with you as long as he wants. But at some point in time, he's going to be like, all right, 
that's enough. He's going to reach out and touch you. He's going to reach out and chasten you. He's going to reach out and correct you. I mean, this is a, it's a throwdown what God does at this point in time. Keep struggling or submit. God says to Jacob, it's enough. It's morning time. I need you to submit. And then Jacob says, ah, bless me. I mean, that's his, his crying uncle, if you will. It's his white flag of surrender. Okay, man, you got me. But before I let go, bless me. That's enough. We hear these words, bless me. We ought to be reminded of the first blessing that Jacob got, the one he got from his father. Remember that one? He got it by deception, we back up a few chapters 20 years earlier in Genesis 27:19 Jacob goes in to his father and his father says what is your name he says my name is Esau he lied he deceived he conned his dad for the blessing and so here it is 20 years later Jacob is wrestling with God and it's the same thing Bless me. It's that asking, God, please bless me. The first time after he gets the blessing, he runs away. This time he's wrestling with God. God says, what is your name? And he doesn't say Esau this time, right? He says, what is your name? The man says. He says, Jacob. He comes clean with God. He acknowledges with the angel of the Lord who he really is, that he's a heel grabber, that his life and his character and his identity has been wound up in living for himself, conning other people, deceiving other people, manipulating other people. I'm Jacob. I mean, what he's saying in that moment when, when the, the angel of the Lord says, what is your name? What he's doing is he's confessing. I am a broken person. I am a sinner. Before he lies, and now he comes clean with God. Now, the beautiful thing about this confession is that immediately God hears his confession, and he says this, you are no longer called Jacob, but from now on you are called Israel. Immediately God gives Jacob that new identity, this idea of forgiveness. So when he confesses, when he comes clean with God, God, I am a sinner, God says, I'm giving you a new name. I'm giving you a new identity. From now on, you are going to be known as Israel, the one who fought with God and men and won. And this is who God is. When we come clean with God, when we confess our sin to God, when we say to God or when we're wrestling with God and we say, God, I'm, I'm tired. You know, I've got too much pain in my life or whatever it might be. I just, I need to just come clean with you. When we do that, he promises to give us a new name. He promises to give us a new identity. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 62, uh, it says that, when people submit to God, he gives them a new name. And then in the book of Revelation, I love this quote, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To the one who is victorious, I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. What John is telling us in the book of Revelation is that when we are in Christ, when we are submitted, when we have surrendered, when we have fallen before God and says, I'm tired of wrestling with you, God. He says, I'm going to put a new name on you. Now, your name might be just fine today. But what God is doing, what he's explaining to us through his story, is that when we are submitted to God, we are no longer defined by our past. That we all of a sudden, God puts a new name on us. And our names are redeemed, wonderful, blessed, beloved, And all the names that we can think of that that reaches forward into the future that God has for us. And this is what God is doing with Jacob. He says, you know what? You're no longer identified by your past as a deceiver. From now on, you are identified as one who is victorious, one who has wrestled with God and won. And here we are a couple thousand years later and we continue to hear the name of Israel. And we think about the 12 tribes of Israel and how God used this man, Jacob, who became known as Israel, to bless the nations and to bless us. So just one final thing I want to kind of lift out of this particular part of Jacob's life. And, and that's how the story kind of concludes, if you will. It's in Genesis thirty-two, thirty-one. It says, the sun was rising on Jacob as he left Peniel. The sun was rising. And sometimes when we read scripture, we wonder why the details are in there. Why do we need to know that the sun is rising? Why is that significant? Sometimes it's not always clear why the details matter, why they're significant. In this story, it actually does matter. Because in the story of Jacob, there was one other reference to the sun. And if you back up uh, just a couple chapters to chapter 28, right after Jacob deceives his father, right after he deceives his brother, he's running away. He's fleeing the promised land. He's going out into the wilderness. He's going into exile for 20 years. He's tired. And he lays down. He has a dream. And there's a ladder going up to heaven. And there's angels going up and down. Remember that story? Not to be confused with Led Zeppelin and Stairway to Heaven, but it's kind of this weird dream that he has. In verse 11 of chapter 28, it says this, When he had reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. So the blessing, after he gets the first blessing from his father, it's a blessing based on deception. And the sun sets. And for the next 20 years of Jacob's life, he is living in darkness, in the wilderness. Because he received that blessing through deception. But on this day, when he comes clean with God, he confesses his sin The question comes before him, what is your name? He says, Jacob. And in that moment, the sun rises. 
You know, the story of Jacob wrestling with God. It's a remarkable story because I think it's also our story. The ways in which we wrestle with God. And I think there's some, uh, one other piece in this that I kind of glossed over. It wasn't so much that Jacob was wrestling with God. It's that God was wrestling with Jacob. He was just going along doing his own thing and then up comes a man to wrestle with him, which ought to tell us, and we see this theme time and time again throughout scripture, that God comes to us. God comes to us and says, hey, I know you've been running from me. We're going to wrestle. I'm going to take you down to the ground. And as we sang about this morning, he just, he pursues us. He comes after us and he wrestles with us. Oh, we wrestle back. We push back against God, but he continues to come after us and love us. And he looks at us and says, what's your name? And we might say, my name is whatever it might be. And when in that moment, if we're saying, you know, my name is Brian and, and my life is all about me. That's what it means to live our lives for ourselves. But until we surrender to God, he's going to continue to wrestle with us until we come completely clean with him. He's going to inflict pain upon us. He's going to chasten us. He's going to wrestle us to the ground until we submit, until we confess. So I think for me, the most important part of this story this morning is where the man looks at Jacob and says, what is your name? Which is another way of saying, are you living for you? Or are you living for me? Are you living your life for your own pleasures, your own happiness? Or are you submitted to God? And we can keep wrestling with God all we want. And he's going to allow us to keep wrestling. But at some point in time, he's going to inflict some pain in our lives. We have to decide, are we going to submit or are we going to keep wrestling? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who pursues us, chases us down, wrestles us to the ground, and invites us to come clean with you. God, so often we go through life living for ourselves. We are like Jacob, the deceiver, trying to con everyone around us so that we can enjoy what we want to enjoy and be about ourselves. But God, you invite us to a better way. And oftentimes, God, that comes with pain and suffering and struggle. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us, you would teach us daily to surrender to you, to submit to you, and to walk with you. Because, God, we want to live lives where the sun is rising, where we receive that blessing from you and walk in the light the rest of the days of our lives. Lord, in your mercy, Hear our prayer.